if you hire a sensitivity writer and they give you feedback, that you should actually take it. And then a lot of people will do this. They'll hire a sensitivity writer for those sorts of that kind of input, knowing that they'll say, hey, so these are the things I noticed that, that like this is kind of weird or this feels like you're sort of exoticizing or fetishizing or, you know, these different things. And then the mm-hmm. author would come back to them like, well, no, it's not, though, because mm-hmm. you see, you know, this, that and the other thing or this is really what I'm doing here. And it, it reminds me of that kind of idea where it's like, we want your ideas, but only if we They're want palatable them palatable to, like, yeah, yeah. to them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about community diversity and tokenism with Crystal Bird Farmer. Crystal is a polyamorous speaker and writer from North Carolina. She's the website editor for Black and Poly and a board member with the Foundation for Intentional Communities. Crystal is passionate about encouraging people to change their perspectives on diversity, relationships, and the world. She recently published the book, The Token, Common Sense Ideas for Increasing Diversity in Your Organization. Crystal, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I read through your book, uh, which came out pretty recently, and I was surprised to hear you talk about uh, coming from a background of not only organizing and engaging in online communities, but also you have this background in co-housing and intentional communities. And I'm curious to hear about how you got into that particular world. Yeah. So for me, polyamory and co-housing are connected through the same person, um, a friend I, or you know, someone, one of my partners in Asheville. Um, he lived in a co-housing community. And um, while I was going up there to visit him, he was having community meetings and showing all the buildings and all the ecological, sustainable Mm. updates they had made. And I thought this is really interesting. Um, So I came down, came back down to where I am near Charlotte, North Carolina, and started working on building my own co-housing community. And that's kind of how I got into the world of intentional communities. Wow, fascinating. And now I think it is really interesting because I realized as soon as I read that, I was like, oh gosh, yeah, I, I feel like my image of intentional communities, at least modern day intentional communities, is I just think very yuppie hippie white. Yeah. As well. Yeah, no, that's that's um, true. <laughs> yeah. In San Francisco yeah. or Ohio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right. No, Asheville also, I think makes that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. so I guess I'm wondering, you know, how do you find that your work it's interesting that you mentioned that for you it overlaps with one person in your life, but I'm curious from your personal experience, like how do you find that your work in intentional community overlaps with your work in kind of polyamorous community dynamics? Well, intentional communities are one of those groups where people are already kind of thinking outside the box. They're trying to do something different. So they have to negotiate with people. They have to communicate. They have to make agreements. They have to, you know, figure out how to represent themselves to the government or to other organizations. So they do a lot of work already that's kind of around relationship building. And so that really connects with polyamory and how much work you have to do to keep your relationships going. Hmm. Right. Have you, I mean, something that I've noticed because like I work with a lot of clients and I ask a lot of clients, you know, when they're thinking about their relationships to think about, you know, what's your ideal, like what's your vision for, you know, the ideal version of your relationships. And a lot of people have like the commune dream 
is essentially what I like to call it. <laughs> a lot of people have the commune dream of like, yeah. all my partners and I, we're going to buy a big parcel of land and build all these tiny homes on it. And we're all going to go there and live. And so I guess I'm also wondering, I mean, do you run across also just a lot of polyamorous people in general holding the same dream also coming into the intentional community? Um, so yeah, intentional community building is hard. So just like polyamory, you have a lot of people who think, oh, this will be great. It'll be wonderful. I can't wait to get all my friends together and we live in this big house. But in reality, you have zoning laws, you have, you know, boards of government that are saying, you know, you have to build such and such and you can't have multifamily here or there. Um, so it really takes a lot of persistence. There is a higher number of people who are non-monogamous in the intentional communities movement than I've seen in any other kind of movement. So I think there's some overlap there, but um, there are not a whole lot of polyamorous intentional communities. There was one in Philadelphia called Compersia that was really cool and had some cool people, but then they all moved out. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. I feel like I hear that story a lot mm -hmm. sometimes. Compersia, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is a good name. I do like that. Yeah. So your yeah. book is called The Token. And just for our listeners or anyone who doesn't know what tokenism is, could you kind of tell us the definition of that? And also, um, can we talk about tokenism specifically in non-monogamous spaces? Yeah, so a token is somebody that represents one or more identities. So if you're talking about a majority white community, the token would be like the token black person. Um, if it's a mostly straight community, then you have a few people who are LGBTQ and they're tokens because they're expected to represent everything that that identity means and to explain it and to, you know, defend it sometimes. Um, in non-monogamy, um, I found myself being the token a lot of times, just being the Black person in a community. So, you know, a lot of polyamorous communities are majority white, the majority middle class. And so there's people who are kind of comfortable in that space. And then there's me who just kind of shows up as I am with all my different identities. And people are looking at me to say, well, why don't you bring in more people who are like you? And that's kind of where the, the book started to, to form in my head. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So so in the book, you start out by identifying as a token, just like you were saying right now. And, and about that kind of that that role that's put on you to sort of be the representative for everyone else who's not part of this group who shares those labels in common with you or mm -hmm. shares those identities in common with you. And so token, I, I feel like the word token is often used in in a negative context or in a derogatory way. And I was wondering if you could talk about your process or your choice for using that in your book for either claiming that word or trying to, I guess, sort of broaden the usage of it or, or kind of what, what went behind that? Hmm. I think for me, it was kind of taking the word and saying, I'd rather you call me your token than to, you know, go out to your community and kind of refer to them. Because, you know, some people use it in a joking way, um, mm -hmm. but it's not a joke. And there's a lot of emotional labor that's tied into being a token. So I wanted to say, hey, this book is going to be very obvious and very clear about what you need to do and, and who you're reaching out to. So call me your token. I'm going to explain it to you. You know, some things are going to be hard to hear, but that's okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this book, I mean, for you, you mentioned that this was kind of like came out of community leaders or other people in community coming to you and asking you, hey, how come you're just the one person? Why don't you bring more people that are like you, which feels like it's a little bit of an emphasis on kind of like the wrong mover and shaker, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think people um, naturally, you know, kind of want to find ways. They want to find somebody who can kind of help them. And I found that a lot being a minority is that 
they see you and they see me smiling. They see me kind of showing up and being, I call it a palatable black person. So I'm, I'm very easygoing. Um, and so they think, okay, well, maybe she's the one who can explain this whole thing to me. So that's where they say, okay, she's approachable. So let me have her do all this explaining. And so the book is me doing all the explaining so I don't have to do it in person every time. Hmm. Yeah. And right. so, yeah. And so, so now you have the book. That makes you're just like, here, yeah. read this. Okay. Yeah. Got it. It uh-huh, does it uh-huh. feel like a really like easy to read, easy to use manual that you can give to leaders or anyone in these communities. But it, it also I felt as though you could use it in so many different spaces, even in like a work mm-hmm. community or various places as well. Was that kind of your intention or were you specifically like this needs to be only for, uh, you know, intentional communities? I mean, I wrote it right after I left a co-housing conference. So the intentional communities movement was very much in my mind. The polyamory community was in my mind. Um, Going through the editing process with the publisher, you know, they talked about how it could have a wider reach. So that's kind of where I started to broaden it out a little bit. Once I started going through edits with the publisher, I was able to kind of add some more in examples, um, maybe take away a little bit of the language that like was very specifically about the USA and kind of make it more broad. So. Mm. Yeah. Cause it did feel very broad to me there. We knew like it, this was a book written by a polyamorous person and you did speak about it somewhat at the beginning and the end for sure. But it did feel super accessible to a wide variety of audiences, which was great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Since the book was published, I mean, have you, have you found that it's made any waves in like your own particular local polyamory community? Um, I don't know. Um, you know, um, I'm part of the community in Charlotte and they're very aware of these issues, you know, during the pandemic before the book came out, you know, I, I sat down in a meeting with some of the young poly people. Um, so they've always been aware of this and I've always kind of been an activist in that side of it for my local community. So, um, you know, they were really excited to, to have the book come out. Nice. Excellent. So uh, something that you talk about in the book, you know, and I think that uh, some pretty common advice that I see floating around out there for encouraging diversity in your organizations or in your workplace is to invite marginalized people or non-majority people into decision-making roles or positions of leadership. However, I think as we've seen, sometimes these efforts can also backfire. Like in the book, you you share a story of being invited to apply for a board member position for a particular organization. Mm-hmm. Um, can you first share a little bit of that story for our listeners? Yeah. So in the book, I talk about being part of um, an organization and going to their national convention, you know, meeting for the first time. And, you know, when I was there to to talk about diversity and, you know, this was my first time meeting some of the leadership of that organization, um, first time being in dialogue with people who were attending the conference. And, you know, when I got back, I got an email from a board member and said, you know, we want you to apply for the board. And so I, I looked at their website. I looked at the other board members. You know, they were older people. They were white. They had a lot of experience with this organization. I thought, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm not like a super good fit to be a board member. I've never been on a board before. Um, well, now I'm on a board for FIC. But <laughs> at that point, I was like, they just want me because I'm Black. And to that felt like, that felt like, they were asking a lot of me to to show up and be a board member and and do all that work. And then I felt like I was also going to be the one educating them about racism, mm. about, you know, marginalization. And I, I wasn't ready to do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's interesting in that story that, you know, it feels like kind of this very real world example of what seems to, you know, some well-meaning people a good mm-hmm. idea in practice ends up actually causing, ironically, more tokenizing behavior. And so I guess I was wondering, you know, what practical advice would you offer for encouraging community leaders to be able to like put marginalized people in positions of power without it simultaneously causing <laughs> like this more and more tokenization to happen? Yeah, I think it's important to be transparent and, you know, to to know that 
we know what you're doing. You know, we, the marginalized people can tell, you know, that you want us for a certain thing, maybe because of our identity. So it's really important for you just to own that if you want to do it, but also don't pull the person who just came in the door, you know, five minutes ago, who just joined your organization, who just started coming to meetings. You really have to get more people in the door who are diverse and get them involved and active in the organization and then let them self-select into leadership positions. And you're growing them instead of just saying, hey, you, I think you're different. So why don't you come in and represent all the different people? Hmm. Right. Yeah. I think in the book, you really lay out it. It's, I mean, the image that I almost get from it, it's kind of like, um, it's like laying a foundation, you know, cause you kind of break it down into like, you know, into like preparing your community, doing the work, you know, whether that's, you know, the anti-racism work or anti-bigotry work, anti-oppression work, things like that, mm-hmm. and then creating culture conscious spaces. And it feels very much like this image of, of, um, kind of like it's like almost like preparing the soil essentially (laughs) you know that you can like prepare the soil but you can't like reach down and like tug on the plant's leaves to force it Mm -hmm. you know to to do a particular thing or be a particular way yeah it's definitely a process it's not going to happen overnight and you know I'm the ultimate cynicist where I, I don't think like any organization that started out majority white is ever going to become minority white. You know, you're never going to have like a huge amount of diversity, you know, so you're, you're, you're working with very small numbers. So it's really important to, to make the experience like a quality experience for the people who are coming in instead of just like pulling on them just because they're, you know, represent some diverse identity that you're actually helping them be a part of the organization and listening to their changes or what they want to change. Um, and then giving them like, you know, a reason to stay in the organization. Because I think a lot of times um, when you have people who um, are asked to make change or asked to be the leading edge of something, they get a lot of pushback, they get a lot of negativity, and then they don't want to stay in the organization. Yeah, that reminds me of a talk that I went to, I guess, a couple years ago now that was about uh, writing, if you're creating fictional content, and how to diversify that. And a lot of it talked about, you know, getting sensitivity readers or people who, first of all, hiring people, paying them to Mm -hmm, bring mm -hmm. perspectives that you don't have. But something they brought up that really surprised me, because I'm not, not a fiction writer myself, but something that came up in the talk that really surprised me was they said, if you hire a sensitivity writer and they give you feedback that you should actually take it and that a lot of people <laughs> will do this, they'll hire a sensitivity writer for those sorts of that kind of input, knowing that they'll say, hey, so these are the things I noticed that, that like this is kind of weird or this feels like you're sort of exoticizing or fetishizing or, you know, these different things. And then the mm-hmm. author would come back to them like, well, no, it's not, though, because mm. you see, you know, this, that and the other <laughs> thing or th- this is really what I'm doing here. And it, it reminds me of that kind of idea where it's like, we want your ideas, but only if we They're want palatable them palatable to like, <laughs> Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah, that's the yeah. that's the big part of the work is actually hearing feedback and then internalizing it and making the changes yourself instead of just like bringing someone on to look the role and to, to make your organization look good. You actually have to listen to them and, and respond to their questions and requests. What, um, I mean, this is something that you cover in the book a little bit more in depth, but I think that you talked about, um, you know, kind of bringing people in and then also having to give them a reason to stay and giving them essentially ways of kind of combating like the natural resistance that comes up to changing things or adjusting things, even in small ways or in very radical ways. Mm -hmm. And I guess I was wondering, you know, from your perspective, what's the most kind of common different types of resistance that you see within, you know, smaller, big organizations trying to make these kind of changes? Yeah. So some of the biggest ones are the people who are like, they're really excited about the change, but they want to control what direction the change Mm. goes So I think we see that a lot, like when we talk about the Me Too movement, when Black Lives Matter was a big thing, they're like, oh, oh my God, I know exactly what we need and we're going to do this, 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 and this. But then you bring someone on, you know, whether it's a facilitator or an organizer or somebody who is actually making 
real suggestions, then they're opposed to that because it doesn't fit their vision of, of where they're going. So there are people who are trying to control the trajectory of the change. The other ones are just the people who are are really negative about the whole process and they'll go on social media or they'll be talking to people behind, um, you know, outside of the meetings and they're just trying to slow the process down and derail it and get people to be against the whole idea of it. So it sounds yeah. like there are, it, there's two maybe types of resistances, like those who mm-hmm. who are excited about it initially, but then are resistant to it after the fact, and then those who come already resistant, like to begin with. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Yeah, I think the, the, the biggest, the, that second group is going to be the biggest one, the people who are like, you know, we have enough diversity. Why is this important? Mm. Why are we doing it? I like that group the way it is. You know, we don't need to change anything. That's going to be the biggest group usually. Well, something that I thought was interesting when you were talking about kind of these different different flavors of resistance or different flavors of people who are resistors that, you know, something that you mentioned is that there can also be the people who their kind of response to these changes and especially like, you know, um, actions that are pushing toward for diversity, that there's the type of person who wants to respond um, by wallowing by like wallowing in the guilt mm-hmm. and like wallowing in the apologies and stuff like that. And I thought that was really interesting of categorizing that as resistance. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I see this in almost every kind of talk or presentation I give, whether it's in person or on Zoom, there are going to be people who, when they hear about oppression, they hear about racism, all these things, they just feel so sad, so upset, so guilty. And, and you know, it's important to process those feelings, but it's, it's not good to do that, you know, when somebody like me is speaking about the real experiences of marginalized people. Um, and that's because you're, you're taking away the emotional energy instead of saying, hey, this is a real problem. White supremacy is something we need to defeat. Now we're turning to, hey, this one white person feels really guilty. So let's make her feel better. Let's make sure she's okay. Let's forgive her. Let's remind her of all these great things she's done. And, and that just takes away the energy from the actual work that you should be doing. I think it's perfectly okay for that white person to go talk to a friend or somebody and, and go through all that. But I'm not, I'm not willing to do that in my, in my role. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the opposite of the resistance resistor thing, or at least not totally the opposite, but sort of the other thing that I saw come up, especially during the, uh, you know, last year with Black Lives Matter and all of that was the the opposite thing of like, oh, God, I just realized that my organization or my peer group is is racist or at the very least is, you know, not inclusive. I need to fix it yesterday. And so I'm going to try <laughs> to rush to do those things and maybe leads to those situations like you were talking about where it's like, cool, the first black person I see, like I'm going to invite them to be a board member of my group or something like that. I noticed that too of the, mm-hmm. I'm realizing now that I'm behind on this and I want a quick fix instead of committing to this longer term gradual fix. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's, that's a very common thing is for people to say, Hey, wow, this is a problem. Let's fix it. Um, but they get bored, you know, after a few weeks, mm-hmm. after a few months when the work gets really hard and this really is work that takes, you know, a lot of time it has to be every single person in the organization, not just the leadership, you know, not just the key members, but everybody kind of has to go through this change. And so that means that you're going to be supporting people through the entire process instead of just saying, OK, now we're doing this. Everybody get over it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I appreciated that, um, you know, something that I think readers can really glean from your book is, you know, along with kind of covering a lot of information in a pretty easily digestible way, you also give these very, very specific like workshops and talking points. Mm -hmm. And you're very specific about like, okay, this is what we're going to be talking about for like this discussion group. You lay out, are you going to have your tokens present or not? You know, Mm -hmm. which I think is actually really key because I think there's a lot of resources, you know, that are given to organizations just kind of assuming 
you got to bring everybody to this particular discussion. You got to mm-hmm. make everybody sit through this, um, as well as giving you like giving the reader like very, very clear discussion questions to look at things from all angles and look at all of the, um, you know, different feelings that may come up during this process as well. Yeah, I wanted it to be really practical and something that people can read a chapter and immediately go and schedule their next group meeting around and and talk it out. Um, I didn't want to have a a long 300-page book just about the theory. I wanted people to be able to take it and and start working on it right away. And the huge, like, kind of glossary of different, like, reading materials at the end of the book was really amazing as well. That, I think, is hugely beneficial to anyone who wants to do this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that was that's the second thing that people ask me for. Once they ask me, you know, how do I get my organization to be more diverse? They say, well, what resources do you have? So I just mm-hmm. took all my links and everything that I had collected over the years and dumped them on the page. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this this very much struck me. First of all, also just so our, our readers know, this book is a very quick read, you know, which is fantastic. And I think that this is a great place for starting, like, especially if you're a community leader, and you're just like super overwhelmed by this. And you know that there's a list of like 20 books, but you don't know which one to start from, you know, starting with Crystal's book, I think is a a fantastic place to kind of get the juices flowing, as it were, and kind of point you in directions to go from there. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about community leaders, because in the book, you, you point out, Tokens are people, which means they can be assholes too. <laughs> and direct yes, quote. Direct quote. <laughs> and and that leaders, community leaders, really need to help people feel included without endorsing harmful behavior, even if that harmful behavior comes from someone who is marginalized. So mm-hmm. have you found that there are effective that that there are people out there who have employed, I guess, effective and not effective ways? that community leaders have kind of pulled off that balance? Um, there are some ways. It's, it's a really hard balance because most organizations or most leaders are kind of already acting from behind where, you know, they're already causing harm to marginalized mm-hmm. people. And so they have the tendency to, um, to really invest in what the marginalized people are saying. But as marginalized people, we also have our own struggles and trauma and things that we're working through. And so we may be in an unhealthy space when we come to an organization. And it's important for a leader to be able to recognize, okay, this is their stuff and this is our stuff. So what can we do to reduce the harm that we're causing but also, when do we set boundaries and say, okay, this is this is not something that I'm going to to engage with. This is not something I'm going to try and fix. It's just that person's that person's struggle, and and we're going to try and and break away from make a set of boundary for whatever we're we're doing. Yeah, I think that's related to something else that you pointed out. Um, you know, you talked about how unless your group is very specifically a support group you know, your group or your organization isn't necessarily the place where a token is going to go to get their healing done. Mm -hmm. And I think that really makes sense looking at it through a community leader perspective of being able to have that discernment of, like you said, what's their stuff and what's our stuff and like, what's the stuff that we can, we can actually work on and we can actually make better and we can actually make more inviting um, as opposed to taking on that burden of like, we also need to heal all this person's baggage, like personal baggage and shit and all that stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, I was part of an organization called New Culture. And, you know, that was one, a couple of summers, you know, when I was doing their summer camp where I really had my own things that I had to deal with, but I was also dealing with what they were dealing with as far as racial, um, racial tension. They were having a lot of things around gender. Um, And so, you know, the way that I reacted then would be different from the way that I am reacting now. And so it took a lot of time and then healing and then talking to this group to understand, you know, I had some stuff going on and that may have made me more critical of the organization and may have ruined or damaged some relationships. And I I wouldn't do the same thing if I were in that group now. So, you know, there's definitely a process and everybody has to 
understand their own traumas and and find places and ways that they can heal from that. Um, and and know that sometimes they're going to mess up and it's not always the organization's fault that they do. Hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean, what tips would you offer for people being able to, I guess, either make that distinction or or have those kind of conversations? Yeah. So if you're in an organization and you feel like you're constantly being triggered or you're constantly being marginalized, you know, it's it's okay to say maybe that organization isn't for you. It's okay to step back and say, you know, somebody else can fight this battle. I'm going to take care of myself. If you do have some energy to be able to say, okay, there are some changes and I want to help champion, that's great for you to do. But also just know that taking care of yourself is the most important thing. If you're a leader, um, it's going to be a little bit harder for you to say, okay, I think you need to leave. You know, you usually don't want to say that as a leader of an organization. So it's important to just set boundaries and say, okay, I hear that you have some concerns with things like this. Um, We're going to address X, Y, and Z. And then we're going to put off, you know, A, B, and C until later. And, you know, you have to be okay saying that. Um, I think in the book, I talk about the order of how you address different areas of diversity, you know? So I say race is like a huge thing that is still going on. And that's something that you should address first. But there are always going to be other things, gender, disability, um, age, LGBTQ. So there's always all these things that you have to address, but you really, as an organization, you have to say, okay, we're going to prioritize some things and not others because we have limited time and energy. Mm. Yeah, I think that message was also really important. And I feel like it was the first time that I kind of came across that message in this space. But it is that idea of like, you can't tackle everything at the same time, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and I do feel like we have seen a lot of that in particular last year of again, you know, kind of people realizing like, oh, gosh, I'm kind of late to this party, or I'm late in doing this work. And now it has to be absolutely everything at once, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. it seems like in real life often results in nothing really being that effective, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, or nothing really being fixed, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So we are going to take a quick break to talk about our sponsors for this episode and the ways that you can support our show so that we can keep this content coming at you for free every week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For a long time now, we've been fans of AdamandEve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on AdamMail.com and Eve'sToys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store, and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code multi at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's multi M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code multi to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. All right. So I'm going to continue this fun, fun trend of quoting you to yourself. <laughs> uh, so this is another one from your book. 
I know Dedeker always hates it when people quote her to I herself. I absolutely hate it. <laughs> hopefully you're all right with that. And this one um, says... It's new to me, so... <laughs> <laughs> all right. You can enjoy it. Then. Well, now you can decide if you like it yeah. or not. <laughs> yeah. So the quote you said was, uh, it's vital that your work include interacting with other privileged people instead of proving how much of an ally you are to marginalized people. And then you go on to suggest to allies that it's better not to talk to marginalized people about the work you're doing for them, but instead to ask them about their struggles and victories without needing to jump in with, oh, and I'm doing these things to help. Can you talk about that a little bit more, how that tends to show up? I mean, that mainly comes from um, just my annoyance with white people. Usually when I am in spaces and somebody is really excited, you know, they, they just read, you know, how to be anti-racist or, you know, they just read white fragility or they saw a webinar or they watched 13th and they just want to repeat all these facts about black suffering and racism to me. And it's like, Mm. I know all this. You don't have to tell me, you don't have to remind (laughs) me that this exists. You're just kind of, you know, they're excited, they're sharing. And I I think that is great, but I'm not the person they should be talking to about it. And mainly that's just because I don't, I don't want to do the the labor of, of remembering all those things and, and holding kind of that pain and then, um, and then assuring that white person that they're a good person, even though they haven't known about this until now. So, <laughs> Right. And then, so then to contrast that, another refrain that comes up a lot in community is this idea that allies cannot and should not be silent or complacent. And I think that people can sometimes struggle with this, where they say, okay, mm-hmm. so... On the one hand, I shouldn't just be talking about all the work I'm doing, but on the other hand, I shouldn't be silent. Like, and then I, I feel like it can lead people to kind of panic and just sort of give up because it's like, I feel like I'm doomed no matter what I do. Um, yeah. And, you know, that, that's something that people have to figure out on their own. Like I said, I think it's important that you talk to other white people or other people who are privileged about what you're learning because you're sharing information that they may not know. You may have a different perspective on it. You may have some personal stories that really impacts them when they hear it. So I think it is better to to talk about that with people than to ignore it or to to not talk about it or to pretend like, you know, everybody's on the same page because everybody's not, you know, we know just from the past election that people have a huge amount of things that they are um, that they believe in or that they, they think about the world that may not be true. So. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This seems like the kind of thing that um, potentially plays out differently when we're all like in community together and like in in-person community together versus the ways that we interact in online community when it comes to things like activism or allyship and things like that. And, yeah. and then of course, like the other complicating factors of like, how do I perform myself? How do I perform my ethic? How do I perform my activism? You mm-hmm. know, things like that. And I guess I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the ways that like social media makes this more complex. Yeah. I, I have a love hate relationship with Twitter mm. because I, I <laughs> don't think we all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's one of the most useless things that anybody can do, but it's also its own way of has its own way of influencing the world and the way that we're doing things. Um, So I think when it comes to activism and educating people, I don't think Twitter is helpful. I think you're just talking to the people who already think like you on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, people are so quick to block others that disagree with them. They tear apart, you know, these, these short statements with that don't have context. They don't have, you know, a lot of, words that don't have a lot of things attached to them. So I think you're you're wasting energy if you're trying to be an activist on Twitter. I mean, unless you have like millions of followers and people that you can actually share in-depth information with, I think most people are just kind of talking to themselves on Twitter. I think when it comes to oh, we're, we're going to get some tweets about that. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> people can okay. just talking to themselves. Yeah, exactly. They're talking to themselves. It's okay. <laughs> 
um, you know, it, I the, the biggest thing that I try and challenge people to do is to talk to their relatives, talk to their friends and family, you know, talk to their partners, talk to people who are in the world around you, you know, and say, you know, this is what I'm learning. And then that that's when you realize, okay, maybe people don't know what pronouns are. They haven't ever used pronouns. They don't know why it's important to ask for them. And you can be someone who educates them, not in a way like, oh, you're wrong, get with the program, but in a way that, you know, people are recognizing that gender has a lot of different elements to it. And, you know, you can be more inclusive and respectful when you do this. So I think it's important for people to have those one-on-one conversations where you're pulling someone aside and saying, hey, this is what I've learned. This is what I know is helpful or is supportive of different people. So maybe you should try it instead of yelling at somebody on Twitter just because, you know, I don't know, they used the wrong pronoun. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think that actually that's a that's a segue into uh, something else that you covered in your your book, which was about this idea of it can be very easy for us to use our privilege to shame, and you kind of make this call of instead of shaming, you know, can we use our privilege to help others understand harm? And I feel like this is a huge topic. Like there's so much there. We could probably do an entire episode just on this. Um, You know, we've talked a lot on the show before about just what we're seeing these days, the phenomenon of, you know, of being canceled on Twitter Mm -hmm. or being canceled within an online group. Um, You know, someone, a newbie comes into a group and uses the wrong term or they accidentally drop a microaggression and everyone just piles on them and that person never wants to come back. And so I guess, you know, we're living these weird dual lives of both like our, our offline community spaces, as well as like our online community spaces within this context of this very shame heavy internet culture. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, I mean, what are your thoughts about what community leaders can do to actually encourage education and education about harm over shaming and, and canceling? Um, I think it's important for leaders to kind of take that humble, you know, like learning stance themselves and say, hey, I'm always learning things. I mess up sometimes. And so, you know, I can still be a good leader even when I mess up. And, you know, I'm going to ask for your forgiveness sometimes and that's okay. And that gives the members some space to say like, okay, yeah, I messed up. Um, and then you, you kind of have to be a little bit more active and say, hey, this person, you know, they said something wrong. They used the wrong term. Let's give them a little bit of space when it comes to Black and Poly, the organization that I run the website for. You know, they have a Facebook group. It has 20,000 members. I'm one of the trolls in the group. I mean, I also give good information, <laughs> but I, I troll people, too. And it's very common for someone who's brand new to, you know, ask a question and it has the wrong words, you know, it it comes from the wrong assumptions and, you know, it's very easy. Well, I'll say personally for me, you know, I can put a dumb GIF on there and say, hey, you know, you're you're messing up or you're going to get, you're going to get, what do they call it? They're going to drag you is what they say. Um, Uh, So I can do that. Yeah, that's what, I guess that's what the kids are saying. Yeah. Um, but I could also, you know, give them a link to the Black and Poly website that has an article that addresses their specific concern. I can define some of the terms for them, you know, so I can be helpful or I can just kind of throw them in the pile and say, ha ha, you didn't get it right the first time. Right. So it seems like it's kind of this emphasis on not just pointing out what was incorrect. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's very easy for a lot of us to stop there is just point out and just kind of a dual. Well, actually that word means yada, yada, yada. Um, and actually kind of redirecting toward what the resource or what the actual education could come from. Yeah. I think it's really important to remember that, you know, we have learned things along the way. So we have been that person who used the wrong term or, you know, wasn't quite, doing it right. So it's important to just kind of have some humility and and think that, okay, if they get a little bit of help, then they can be as awesome as I am. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I and I think that, yeah, you, you really expressed that in the book as well. It's this idea of like, so many of us are unlearning oppression in different ways, you know, kind of depending on what our identities are, what our backgrounds are, what our assumptions are. And this idea of like, everyone else around you is also unlearning oppression at the same time as you are as well, even mm -hmm. if you're in a different place in the journey. And I, yeah, I guess it comes back to that humility um, and compassion, ultimately. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about, uh, towards the end of the book, you talked about compensation of uh, people of color when they are doing emotional labor and education. And if you are a person who is more of like a community leader, when are appropriate times to compensate the people of color who are doing educational things like this? Hmm. Um, I'm going to go on the side of always compensating people. Great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, you know, it's, 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 there are going to be people who are willing to do the work for free and that's great, but also you should recognize that they're doing something above and beyond what they're what they could be doing as a member of your community. So I think you should recognize that by compensating them. And that was a hard lesson for me to learn mm -hmm. because I was involved in my local community for so long just as a member, you know, just as like a meeting organizer. Um, that when I started doing more of this work, they were like, Well, we're gonna pay you. And I'm like, but you know, so so taking money was hard for me, but it's actually a good thing to do. So <laughs> That's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. It, uh, that is such a hard transition to make yeah. to, to accepting money also. <laughs> I've, I've definitely noticed mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. a lot of people echo something similar of like, wait, what? Yeah. And it, how do I, how do I accept yeah. money? It does feel like a lot of communities just expect people to like, oh, you're giving your time for free and you're giving your education for free, it, it, regardless of who you are. But I really appreciated that you put that in the book. It's a good lesson for people to understand that. And yeah. you've also kind of set it up so that now that you have a book, that it is very easy to just be like, well, buy my book. That's true. <laughs> That's a good exactly. Even before we get to the point of hire me mm -hmm. as a consultant or anything like that, it's like, here, start here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what is your greatest hope or wish for the future of the polyamorous community? Because you've written this amazing book. You have so many great like outlines for community members and leaders. So kind of what is like a best case scenario future that we're hoping for here with polyamorous communities? Um, so I went to the Loving More conference in 2014, I think. And I was in Philadelphia um, and I showed up and there was like one or two other black people and the, the other one of the one other black women looked at me and she was like, we're it. And I was like, yep. And so I would love when COVID, you know, is under control and we start having in-person events. I would love to show up at a polyamory convention and there just be, you know, 30, 40 percent people of color and all kinds of diversity and for us to look at each other and say, hey, I know you, you know, we're family, we're friends, you know, this is comfortable because the community is open and accepting and, and willing to do that hard work of having people together. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 yeah and the very last chapter in your book, the title is Keep On Keeping On. And I think that's such a good lesson i think for all of us who want to be allies to really take is that idea of it's not just going to change overnight and finding a way to do to do your work in a sustainable way that's not just based on getting praise and approval for it because like you pointed out mm -hmm. you might even have people leave your group because they're resistant to it and that that's okay that it's mm -hmm. okay for those mm -hmm. things and something that i, I really liked is your, your very last line here is you're talking about essentially how to how to respond when someone who is black or otherwise marginalized is telling you about their experience and you just said you don't have to come up with a better response then i hear you and i'm going to do better i think that that has been one of the lessons that i think for me has taken a while to learn to to not need to get approval 
And like to understand that I, I will never get that and that that's okay. That's mm-hmm. not why I'm doing it. And it's, I'm not going to lie. It's still hard, but I, I do think that's so important. And I love that you ended your book acknowledging that and kind of being real about that and that that's what we need to do. Yeah, definitely. I want people to keep trying. I don't want them to get so frustrated that they're not perfect and just give up. I want everybody to keep going. Yeah. So, Okay. This book, uh, it's fantastic. Like we said, it's it's fairly short. It's you know you could probably read this in an afternoon. Uh, I would say I'd add this to our required reading list for community leaders, especially, Absolutely. but uh, ideally for everyone out there. It's just like you said, Crystal. You didn't spend you know three hundred pages talking about the theory. It just kind of gets right into just very matter of fact. This is what's going on. Here's here's my perspective on this. And it's a lot of that stuff that you get, <laughs> you get some perspective and some answers on the questions that you might want to ask, but you don't want to tokenize people in your group by asking them. So <laughs> I think this is an amazing resource and I hope that everyone goes out and buys it right now. And so Crystal, can you tell us where people can go to find you and your work and where they can go buy their copy? Yeah, so you can um, buy the book anywhere that sells books, including Amazon or an independent bookstore. Um, you can find me on my website. It's crystalbirdfarmer.com. And I'm going to spell it. It's C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-B-Y-R-D-F-A-R-M-E-R.com. And I'm on Facebook at Crystal Bird Farmer, Twitter at Crystal B Farmer. And you'll see all my tweets about being mean to people. <laughs> and um, I'm on Instagram, too. I, yeah, Crystal B Farmer. Right. Perfect. And then I also saw this was listed in the end of your book um, that you listed the website of Big Sister Team Building. Yeah. So I do go and talk to people for money. So, um, you know, (laughs) if you are an organization and you want to have me come in person and work through the exercises, do a diversity training, facilitate, um, I can come. Well, you know. Depending on COVID, (laughs) I can can talk through Zoom. I can help your organization take those steps toward being more diverse wherever you are on the journey. So we are going to be sticking around with Crystal for our bonus episode to keep the conversation going. So stick around for that. And for all of you who are listening, we would love to hear your thoughts about this week's episode. Um, Have you checked out Crystal's book yet? Have you, um, are you a community leader and you're trying to incorporate some of these ideas into your group? Have you run into frustrations or struggles or victories? We want to hear about it. So the best place to share your thoughts with us and other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at multiamory.com. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowork and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Onan from the Fractal Cave EP. Full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.